Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Thus far on Breaking Down Patriarchy podcast, we've talked a lot about how the system of patriarchy has impacted women, but we haven't talked much about what it means to be a woman. Simone de Beauvoir famously said, one is not born, but becomes woman. And we talked about the concept that sex is biological and gender is social, or put another way, sex is between the legs and gender is between the ears. But today we're going to discuss a ground groundbreaking text that calls those assertions into question and paved the way for queer theory. It's Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, written in 1990. And I'm so happy to have the brilliant and very experienced Maxine Hanks here to discuss it with us. Thank you so much for being here again, Maxine. Oh, gosh. Thank you, Amy. It's always fun to discuss books with you. I love your podcast. And I've been looking forward to discussing Gender Trouble um, because it's such a major feminist work that changed the landscape of feminist theory and, and gender studies and queer theory. Um, and yeah, I know I was majoring in women's studies in the late 1980s and early 90s, when right when this book came out. So it loomed huge in our women's studies program and reading list shaping um, our feminist courses at the U of U. And I found it super challenging then yet invigorating. And it has continued to be both since then, along with Butler's subsequent work. Hmm. Well, I have to say, I had never heard of this book until you recommended it, actually. And then once you mentioned it to me, like, oh, this book really actually should be on your reading list, then I've started to notice it everywhere. It's been referenced by other authors. Um, My friend Matthew will be doing our episodes on LGBTQ history and queer theory. And then he mentioned Judith Butler. And he said, well, you, you've read Gender Trouble, right? You've read. And I said, no, I haven't, but I'm going to anyway. Um, so it's kind of a primer and really an essential stepping stone to understand works afterwards. So anyway, I'm really glad we added it to the list. I have to say for listeners, it's really quite dense. It's really academic and jargony. <laughs> and so for me, I so appreciate having you, Maxine, who can really kind of make it more accessible. A lot of listeners might just appreciate the summary rather than reading the whole thing. But if you're interested in really kind of a graduate school course on gender theory and like the the foundation of queer theory, um, you'll really want to read this book and really dive into it. But again, it's it's like not something that you would take on vacation to read by the pool necessarily, but <laughs> but really important, right? A really important book. Oh, yeah. It completely transformed the landscape of feminist theory and gender studies and launched queer theory. So I'll start us off with a brief intro of the author, as usual, and then I'd love it if you could provide some context and framing before we start sharing passages of the book. Sure. And I'll, I'll note also, this is um, a first for the podcast, Judith Butler is legally non-binary, and Butler goes by both she, her, hers, and they pronouns. And in sharing her bio right now, I'm going to choose to use they pronouns And I'm going to be completely honest and a little vulnerable in sharing that because I was raised in the time and place and the way that I was, and because I don't have any non-binary friends really in my life who are my age that I see often, 
using they pronouns is new to me. And it's outside my comfort zone because I've lived as long as I have never having done that before. And so I made the choice for me that while Judith Butler would be okay with she, her pronouns, I'm going to use they, their pronouns for my own practice so that when I meet non-binary people in the future, I'll have some practice using them. And my kids have non-binary friends. And um, so later in the podcast, I might revert to she, her, and Maxine, you can refer to Judith Butler however you would like to. But I do want to be clear for, for myself that if Judith Butler had said, my pronouns are they, and please use they, then I would use they the whole time. But she's okay. She, mm-hmm. they are okay with either one. And I'm, I'm going to practice using they. So it's interesting. Um, I'm comfortable with using they as a pronoun and have plenty of non-gender or non-binary gender um, friends that prefer they, but, but for today I chose to use her and she just because it's cumbersome to use they in a, in a conversation like this. That's completely fine. And it's interesting too. I was looking, I really wanted to get it right. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that I um, was honoring Judith Butler and Actually, it's only one or two sites that refer to Judith Butler as they and the vast majority uses she, her. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, truly, either one is fine. And so it's really, like I said, just for me that I'm going to choose to do this. OK, so here we go. Judith Pamela Butler was born in 1956 in Cleveland, Ohio, to a family of Hungarian Jewish and Russian Jewish descent. Most of their maternal grandmother's family perished in the Holocaust. Butler's parents were practicing Reform Jews. Their mother was raised Orthodox, but eventually became Reform, while their father was raised Reform for his whole life. And here I just have to comment again, and it keeps coming up, the contribution of Jewish people to the field of philosophy and women's studies just blows me away. It's crazy how disproportionately high that number is of Jewish contributions. It's really interesting to me. So I want to point out also that Reform Judaism, for listeners who haven't really studied it, is it's a major Jewish denomination that emphasizes the evolving nature of the faith and the ethical aspects of Judaism, rather than um, a lot of emphasis on the ceremonial aspects. And Reform Judaism also emphasizes the importance of human reason and intellect. And that makes sense then because Judith Butler attended uh, Hebrew school, but when she was in Hebrew school, her rabbi said that Judith talked too much, was too, too talkative in class. So this rabbi created ethics classes just for Judith in Hebrew school because they were questioning so much and talking so much and So Judith Butler received really the first training in philosophy through Hebrew school. And again, it was because in this denomination, they um, really emphasize ethics and reason. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Judith Butler chose to attend university at Bennington College because, quote, it seemed to be a place where as a young queer kid, I would be okay in 1974. I knew that there were other people who were at least minimally bisexual, end quote. Butler says that their parents, while not always wholly comfortable with their sexuality, were ultimately accepting. Judith remembers that their father was very happy when they came home from college with a Jewish girlfriend. 
So I guess as long as they're Jewish, <laughs> then it's okay. <laughs> so Judith attended Bennington College before transferring to Yale University, where they studied philosophy and received a BA in 1978 and a PhD in philosophy in 1984. Butler taught at Wesleyan University, George Washington University, and Johns Hopkins University before joining University of California, Berkeley in 1993. So in the preface to the 1999 edition, which is the one I read, Judith Butler shares some of the motivations and thinking behind writing Gender Trouble. And I found that that was really useful to me as I approached this book. So I'm going to share three passages from the preface that I thought were really interesting. First, Butler says, quote, I sought to understand some of the terror and anxiety that some people suffer in, quote unquote, becoming gay, the fear of losing one's place in gender, end quote. And that will be kind of a theme, I guess, and maybe possibly some uh, possibly describes some listeners' reactions as you listen to as they listen to this episode is kind of losing your place and going, whoa, where am I? Like I'm out in space. This isn't familiar to me. And it can produce anxiety um, because we're not used to it. So second, I found this description really helpful. Quote, the text was produced not merely from the academy, but from convergent social movements of which I have been a part. And within the context of a lesbian and gay community on the East Coast of the United States, in which I lived for 14 years prior to the writing of this book, despite the dislocation of the subject that the text performs, there is a person here. I went to many meetings, bars, and marches, and saw many kinds of genders. I understood myself to be at the crossroads of some of them, and encountered sexuality at several of its cultural edges. I knew many people who were trying to find their way in the midst of a significant movement for sexual recognition and freedom, and felt the exhilaration and frustration that goes along with being a part of that movement, both in its hopefulness and internal dissension." At the same time that I was ensconced in the academy, I was also living a life outside those walls. And though Gender Trouble is an academic book, it began for me with a crossing over, sitting on the beach, wondering whether I could like the different sides of my life. End quote. And finally, this next passage was really striking, and I believe really important in understanding Judith Butler's motivation and point of view in writing this book. So here's the quote. Quote, I grew up understanding something of the violence of gender norms. An uncle incarcerated for his anatomically anomalous body, deprived of family and friends, living out his days in an institute in the Kansas prairies. Gay cousins forced to leave their homes because of their sexuality, real and imagined. My own tempestuous coming out at the age of 16 and a subsequent adult landscape of lost jobs, lovers, and homes. All of this subjected me to strong and scarring condemnation, but luckily did not prevent me from pursuing pleasure and insisting on a legitimating recognition for my sexual life. It was difficult to bring this violence into view precisely because gender was so taken for granted at the same time that it was violently policed. 
This book is written then as a part of the cultural life of a collective struggle that has had and will continue to have some success in increasing the possibilities for a livable life for those who live or try to live on the sexual margins. I thought that there were so many interesting points in those quotes, one of which is that yeah. gender was so taken for granted at the same time that it was violently policed. I thought that was a really interesting uh, yeah, paradox, really. Yeah, definitely. You know, I love that you gave her personal background, Amy, because the lived experience in a body, a family, a culture shapes all of us, and it especially has shaped all of the groundbreaking feminists and gender theorists. And I just find it really, really fascinating and important how her own identity is kind of bi-gendered, masculine and feminine, and her sexual orientation is bi and then gay or lesbian. And then the, the body and the suffering of her uncle, mm-hmm. who had, as she said, a typical, you know, um, secondary sex, sexual characteristics, um, is, is really, really interesting because his, his body itself um, as, as non-binary, non-typical shaped her experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and we'll be getting into that idea a little bit later, but I just think that that's so important for understanding why she was awakened to this at such a young age, why she was just so aware plus her own brilliance and her own genius, but mm-hmm. that she would be driven to do something theoretically scholarly and, and, um, socially about these issues. Yeah, I, I agree. And two things that keep coming to my mind that I've learned in the process of doing this podcast, just two little sound bites from the 1970s that won't be new to you, but they were to me. One is that concept that arose from the second wave of feminism, which is the personal is political, right? Mm-hmm. And that really went the first time, actually, you know what, the first time I heard that was from a professor in grad school, and he said it and like stopped my world for a second, because I thought, yeah, that's how I see the world too, is that at the end of the day, all of this theory and all of these political, you know, discussions and debates and policies, it's about real people's lives. And like you said, we live our lives in our bodies. And so the other phrase that comes to my mind is the title of the book that we covered, Our Bodies, Ourselves. It's Mm -hmm. real people's emotions and relationships. And yeah, this uncle living incarcerated um, because of his body, that's himself, that's his life. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's real. And what else actually matters more than that, to be honest? And so... Um, well, it's interesting because her book, Gender Trouble, really takes off from that point because... Yeah. Um, because it, it's very paradoxical, her position, which I'll get into later, but that the body does shape, inform, affect, ground our lived experience. And yet what she's doing with gender trouble is is actually, in, in many ways, departing from the body and, and basically mm-hmm. saying that it's desire and performance that, that constructs us much more than the body. And so she's really moving away from the essential reality of the physical body in a number of ways, while mm. still advocating for 
the body as as fluid and malleable and changeable and that all bodies should be accepted but that bodies she's saying bodies are not static they're not definite they're not essential they are fluid they are um changeable and so you can't have a fixed definition or or identity um, about the body but we'll get into that well, I was going to say, just run with it. You've got the ball now, Maxine. Just keep going. <laughs> Honestly, like that, that was the bio for Judith Butler. And so I would love it if you would just run with this and start to give us some broader context about Gender Trouble and what it meant when it was published and, and provide some framework. Sure. Um, you know, Gender Trouble arrived at another paradigm shift between the decades of feminism, like sexual politics had in 1970 and Women's Spirit Rising had in 1980, as a watershed moment that shaped, captured, and even created the new, the next horizon for feminism. Gender trouble marked the end of second wave feminism uh, at the end of the 80s and the beginning of third wave feminism in 1990. So to use a postmodern term, gender trouble itself was a signifier of that shift from second wave feminism and women's studies in the 70s and 80s to queer theory and gender studies in third wave feminism of the 1990s and into the 2000s. In her preface to the second edition, which is the one I read also, Butler said, she didn't know it would constitute a provocative intervention in feminist theory or be cited as one of the founding texts of queer theory. So like the other mothers of feminist theory before her, she didn't know that she was the mother of a new movement or paradigm shift when she was writing the book. She was just struggling to voice what she felt was an utterly vital new perspective. Her explanation in this second edition of um, Gender Trouble is interesting. It's revealing. She says, as I wrote it, I understood myself to be in an embattled and oppositional relationship with certain forms of feminism, even as I understood the text to be part of feminism itself. This confession describes, I think, the crux of her work's position in relation to feminism. And, and it also gets at the crux of my response to her work, which I'll probably mostly be talking about today, which I see as indeed oppositional to some feminisms, departing from feminism while also emerging from it. Her theories are feminist in some ways, but anti-feminist in others. I see this paradox in, of her work as both the strength and the weakness of her work and why there were mixed reactions from other feminists to her work, as well as to the queer theory which arose from her work. Second wave feminism had worked hard for decades to remove sex and gender limitations for women. Yet at the same time, second wave feminism was providing a needed distinction between sex identity as biologically based versus gender identity as socially constructed or fluid, as you described beautifully in your introduction, Amy. This distinction that, that feminism brought gave men, women, LGBTs, intersex and trans individuals more freedom and validation to determine and claim their own unique gender identity as well as their sexual orientation, attraction, sexual roles, and, and even sexual identity. Uh, 
regardless of their biological identity. So this premise of sort of dividing gender identity from, from sexual identity was, was a core idea that was seen as really liberating. And it said that while sex is biological, gender and identity are entirely fluid and constructed. And so th this was a huge improvement, you know, for, for women and for feminists in society. And this was a major contribution of second wave feminism. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for that, Maxine. So let's dive in to some of her basic premises, along with sharing some passages from the text. And I would love it if you would get us started with some important concepts from the book. Sure. I have to say that because her work is so dense and complex, particularly where she's engaging the work of theorists and going really, really deep mm -hmm. with the unpacking and deconstructing of theory and how it relates to lived experience, what I'm doing is um, is very simple and, and big picture. And so I'm just going to engage a couple of major sort of ideas and tensions in the, in the text to, to try to communicate what I see as some of the most crucial or central premises that then gave rise to some um, important discussions. And so I'm kind of just identifying a couple of major tensions in the time that we've got. But um, first off, Butler's work was a radical departure from and a deconstruction of that feminist notion I mentioned of sex versus gender as a kind of um, dichotomy. Butler argued that both gender and sex are constructed, they're performative as, as established or created through one's own choices and behavior. So she was saying that one can construct their different gender as well as sexual identity via their own behaviors. So she proposed a notion of performative identity as the basis for both gender identity and sexual identity, asserting that both are created by behavior and performance. So here's a quote. If gender attributes and acts, the various ways in which a body shows or produces its cultural signification are performative, then there's no pre-existing identity by which an act or an attribute might be measured. There would be no true or false, real or distorted acts of gender. And the postulation of a true gender identity would be revealed as a regulatory fiction. That gender reality is created through sustained social performances means that the very notion of an essential sex and a true or abiding masculinity or femininity are also constituted as part of the strategy that conceals gender's performative character and also the performative possibilities for proliferating gender configurations outside of those restricting frames of masculinist domination and compulsory heterosexuality. So Can you Butler, unpack that, Max? <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid now you'd ask that. 
<laughs> well, listeners will see what we mean, right? It's like, I get it. I get it. Oh, I don't get it. Oh, I get it again. Oh, I don't get it again. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there's just so much to unpack. Okay, help us. So to unpack that a little bit, which is mm-hmm. a really complex uh, quote, but but very vital. Um, but to kind of keep it simple, I'll just say that Butler criticized a very key premise of feminist theory and practice regarding gender and sex by arguing that both gender and sex are irreducible to natural or heterosexual categories. Her view opposed all essentialist claims about sex as being natural or fixed. And instead, she emphasized that sex and gender are both relational. Thus, both are like all relations. They are constructed because all relations are constructed. So that's kind of her logic. She asserted that no stable gender identity exists behind the actions that seek to express gender, but that these acts constitute an illusion of some stable gender identity. So, you know, here's, I want to, I want to read another quote from her um, and then maybe unpack, I'll, I'll be unpacking things as I go. She says, if the immutable character of sex is contested, perhaps this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was always already gender. <laughs> with the consequence that the distinction between sex and gender turns out to be no distinction at all. So what she's doing is removing or, or, or um, closing that dichotomy or, or gap that feminists had created between sex as, as biological and determinative and gender identity as fluid. She's removing that. And she's equating sex with gender and saying they are both constructed. I just, yes. I mean, I know we're going to get into this, but one of my thoughts is this is it's very obvious that she's responding to Simone de Beauvoir, right? And I'm, I'm remembering our episode on Simone de Beauvoir and how as an, an existentialist, an existentialist did not see, you know, that human beings have an essence, which then is mm-hmm. expressed in gender. It's that we all create our own essence. Mm-hmm. We create with our actions, with our behaviors, we create our lives, we create meaning. And um, it seems to be very much in line with that existentialist idea, mm-hmm. which is from our, con- it's very, much at odds with our common faith tradition where we believe in gender essentialism, right? Like our spirit has a gender and then it just is expressed through our bodies. And that is your one true gender. This is the absolute opposite of that. It seems Mm -hmm. to me. Um, But I'm also still trying to wrap my mind. And I was during the whole book, I was trying to wrap my mind around how so many, you know, the majority of human beings do have um, really sexual organs that are easy to observe and say, that's a boy, that's a girl. How is that just constructed? But I know you'll get to that, but I just want to put that out there for listeners. If you're feeling a little, if you're wondering how this can be, then I am too. 
and, we'll, and I know you'll walk us through it. So we'll, I just wanted to put that out there. We'll get into that a, a little bit. Yeah. But she does use de Beauvoir. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, I'll use, I'll use her quote in a minute where she cites de Beauvoir as a springboard to, to validate and justify her, her approach and her theory. I also want to note, I have to note back to her, the relationship to her uncle who was imprisoned yeah. for being non-binary. Again, what's fascinating and what's paradoxical for me and something I will engage more as this goes on about Butler's work is that on the one hand, his body is not binary. It's Mm -hmm. Mm non-binary. And yet it is his essential physical body that is the premise upon which he's judged and upon which she is catalyzed and, and compelled to defend and include non-binary bodies. And so there's a paradox there mm. that it is the essential body that he had. It is, essen- it is his essential physical self that, that is the, the lived experience that catalyzes all this. And yet his, his body is non-binary. So I see that as a really key paradox in her mm-hmm. and her work, because she mm-hmm. tends to, as you said, see, uh, physical bodies and, and primary and secondary sex characteristics as constructed, which right. is what most queer theorists and postmodernists and trans activists, that's, that's how they see it. They, they argue that, that biology is constructed and in, in many ways it is, but in some ways it's essential. And so we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But, yeah, um, um, so Butler shifted the viewpoint from biological sex as natural or essential to the viewpoint that nothing is natural or essential, like you were saying. She's saying that all aspects of body and identity are fluid, constructed by behavior, desire, performance, and power. So yeah, that's, that's what she's proposing, which is really uh, complex. Um, what she does is just to kind of give a quick overview of how she does it. This, this is like a quick one, one or two sentence overview. She engaged theories, really complex theories from Freud and Lacan on psychological formation and de Beauvoir, Kristeva, Irigaray, and, uh, Wittig on female sex and gender and feminism. And she explores Derrida and Foucault on postmodern theory. And then she takes all these theories and really engages them and and brings them together in unique ways and uses the work of all these theorists to support her, her premise that sex as well as gender is socially constructed. And there are a number of, you know, academics who have a problem with how she does that, which I'll get to in a minute, but her conclusions you know, based on her use of these theorists becomes the basis for her book. And her book becomes the basis for many countless gender studies and feminist theory courses in the 1990s onward to the present time. I mean, Judith Butler's work reigns supreme in academia. Hmm. And these courses and these students and professors, I've watched them since the 80s, repeat and replicate her engagements and her conclusions. So a a major premise of her book is her critique of that feminist differentiation that I've described between gender and sex, arguing that feminism was wrong to view women 
as a group of people who had common characteristics. Well, you know, that is the basic premise Mm -hmm. of cultural and radical feminism and separatist feminism and all the different feminisms. Um, Butler labeled that kind of feminism, difference feminism, as ahistorical or not grounded in actual history of bodies, identities, and their evolution over time. Thus, unreal. So she basically sweeps them aside as, as wrong and unreal. She says, if there is something right in Beauvoir's claim that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman, it follows that woman itself is a term in process, a becoming, a constructing that cannot rightfully be said to originate or to end. As an ongoing discursive practice, it, in other words, woman, is open to intervention and resignification. Okay, this is really the crux of her argument and the basis for her claims that both sex and gender are constructed. And, and this argument becomes the foundation of the um, queer theory and uh, trans activist view of woman, the definition of woman. What is the definition of woman? Who gets to define what woman is? Is it, is it some traditional inherited concept? Is it um, some natural, verifiable, definite biological quality? Or is it up to the individual themselves? So this, this is really the crux of, of how she justifies um, the fluidity of biology and sex. Butler argued that feminism had reinforced the binary view of gender relations and traditional gender roles. And so feminists should not try to define women as a definite category or woman as a definite category. But feminists should instead, she said, focus on how power functions and shapes our understandings of womanhood in both society and even within the feminist movement. So this was a huge, I mean, it's a very huge uh, step away from advocating and defending um, the lived physical biological experience of a woman in a body, a female body towards a really a theoretical unpacking of what it means to be a woman in a body. Butler dissolved the link between sex and gender so that gender and desire, which replaced sex as the more operative factor in sexual identity can be, as she said, flexible, free-floating, and not caused by other stable factors. So she wants to completely unhook um, not only um, sex from gender or gender from sex, but she wants to unhook sex from any sort of static or stable biological basis. She says that 
that both gender and sex are socially constructed and malleable and fluid or performative rather than sex being fixed or natural or definitive biologically is unmutable or essential. So this notion of identity is entirely free and flexible performance, not essential biology, is one of the major foundations of her work and also of, of queer theory and, and of course, um, trans activism. So, you know, I'll just do a little unpacking here. First of all, I'll, I'll just say, you know, I think most feminists, myself included, and, and uh, you know, a lot of academics will agree that Butler was right in several ways, that the binary of male versus female sexed bodies doesn't hold true all the time or even a lot of the time in mm-hmm. all kinds of ways. For example, um, nearly 2% of human bodies are born with non-binary primary or secondary sex characteristics, either atypical chromosomes or intersex reproductive organs. Thus, they are not exclusively male or female, but somewhere between or including both sexes. So, you know, the biology is complex. It's, it's beyond binary. There are all kinds of non-binary uh, bodies. That's so all- many. Sorry, I just have to throw in there. Go ahead. I looked up those numbers too, and that's so many more than I thought, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, two, two out of every 100 people. And so that means like we all definitely know intersex people, mm-hmm. but we just might not know it because they may not talk about it or advertise it. And um, that's just really important to know how common that is, you know? Oh, yeah. And I mean, the stories, the the books, the films, the documentaries mm-hmm. about intersex people, mm-hmm. uh, everyone should should read some of those and watch some of those because they will blow your mind. Mm-hmm. And even though it's it's under 2%, but it's I think it's like 1.7 or 1.8. It's just it's almost 2%. Mm-hmm. Um, the the suffering, the prejudice mm-hmm. and the horrific gender reassignment surgeries when these children are born and assigned one gender or the other because they had, you know, complex, non-definitive genitalia or reproductive organs. I mean, the suffering that these Mm. intersex individuals go through is just, it's horrible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, look on the internet. There are lots of really good documentaries out there. And, Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in, in past decades and centuries, um, what intersex people went through was was terrible. They were seen as freaks or uh, evil, you know, and were tortured and killed. I mean, it's yeah. it's pretty horrific. It is, um, and I I really appreciate when I've seen it represented in the media. I think of Jamie Lee Curtis. I know that she was mm-hmm. born um, intersex, and mm-hmm. I have so appreciated her honesty about that and talking about it openly, because obviously it really, really helps to destigmatize it. And there's also a wonderful episode on Call the Midwife. And I talk about that show a lot, but mm-hmm. just anytime it appears in the media with a, you know, a, a character that you can, can see as a person, if you don't know of anybody in that situation, then sometimes it's hard to have empathy and compassion and think of it as a legitimate issue. And so I, I just think it's yeah really important for that to be represented more. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So another way in which biology is constructed, of course, is that biology is, is, are, is formed 
by the fertilization of an egg that grows in utero and develops. And there are all kinds of factors affecting that developing embryo. And so, you know, a, a body is constructed. It's it's constructed, and there are many factors that go into constructing that body. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, half of 1% of all people identify as transgender, either just or, organically, you know, uh, and psychologically, or, or physically. And so that's another uh, factor in, in, you know, the reality that, that um, biology and sex are, are, are mutable and changeable because even typical uh, male and female sexed bodies can morph from male to female or female to male via hormone treatments and sexual reassignment surgery. So biological sex identity can be very fluid, malleable, um, and, and constructed in, in a number of ways, as well as gender identity. And, and it can be performative. People can change their, their, um, sexual identity and, and their, secondary sex characteristics and their sex hormones. They may not be able to change their chromosomal um, biology. And that's kind of one of the sticking points between essentialists and constructionists that, you know, chromosomes are chromosomes and you're born with what you've got. But then, you know, um, non-binary theorists come back and say, yeah, and chromosomes are, are not all definite and they're not all Mm -hmm. uh, normal. They're, they're atypical. So what we see is both. We we see both uh, typically binary chromosomal um, sex identity, and then very atypical non-binary chromosomes. But anyway, so Butler's work inspired and championed a much needed long overdue um, inclusion of sex fluidity and non-binary sexual identity and constructed sexual identity, as well as um, non-binary gender identity and fluidity, queer theory, sex and gender performance, trans identities and trans activism, all of them as very real valid and integral parts of our notion of gender and sex and, and, um, and also our studies of gender and sex, that all of these things needed to be considered and part of gender studies. So she broadened out the, the, the concept in the field of women's studies and, and women's studies departments and programs began changing their name to gender studies programs mm. and departments because of her work. Mm. And feminist okay. theory, yeah, was widened and broadened out into a more complex um, field that embraced queer theory and and trans theory and post you know postmodern and others. Hmm. That makes sense. That is so interesting. I'll say even as I was uh, looking at PhD programs, which that that. Um, search for the perfect program actually was what catalyzed me doing this podcast. But I, one of the things that I, one of one question I had as I was looking at different universities was that very question, because 
because of where I was and what I had experienced and what I was looking for, I was looking more for like women's history. And when I would look at the different departments in universities, I saw tons of, yeah, it was called gender studies. And even the one-on-one classes in those um, master's and PhD programs were gender theory, queer theory. And, and I knew back then that I wasn't even ready for that because I'd never even, you know, read Wollstonecraft or Beauvoir or for Dan, I'd never read any of these books. And so just you explaining that made a lot of sense. I would have had a different experience, for example, if I had been Mm -hmm. seeking a course in women's history 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. So these programs really were changed by Butler. I did not realize that. Very much. Yeah, Yeah. very much. When I entered women's studies in in the mid to late 80s, it was women's studies. Yeah, And I was taking women's history classes and women's studies and feminist theory classes. Mm -hmm. And then Butler came along in 1990 and just completely transformed all of that. Mm -hmm. And and now there is not a women's studies program at the University of Utah. It's gender studies. And in fact, Mm. it's been enfolded into um, cultural studies. And, um, and so there's a, there, out of that shift, there is this tension that, mm-hmm. that emerged and it still exists today and is an ongoing academic scholarly and feminist discussion about what do we do with these categories is, is women's studies and women's history and the category of, of women and women's, is that still a real category? Is it still mm-hmm. use? Is it still useful? You know, right. what does woman mean now, and how do we work with that? And so, this is an ongoing tension between older feminists like myself, <laughs> who who um, want to argue for and defend um, some essential biological. Uh, aspects and qualities of bodies and lives and of um, women's history and women's studies uh, along with the the non-binary constructed non-essential aspects of gender. And so uh, there, there's an ongoing tension there uh, between those, those two. And, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more in a minute. Perfect. Well, can I ask you really quick, and I don't want to go, mm-hmm. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I want to ask a little bit about the responses to Butler's work when it, right when it came out, because, you know, we're, we're discussing this tension and the debate, but how was this received at the time? Were, were the responses to Butler mostly positive or critical or both when it came out? You know, they were, I think, more positive than negative, but definitely both and very energetically both. So most of her respondents were, were saying that her work was really powerful and really needed and thank heavens and it's about time because finally non-binary lives can speak as central and real and not marginal or other or unreal. So they saw this as just this extraordinary breakthrough in consciousness and, and humane approaches to, to sex and gender. But at the same time, two conflicting premises or perspectives on how to define bodies as essential versus constructed or binary versus non-binary emerged. And so the, the, the supporters took one side and the critics took the other side, not entirely, but, but generally the supporters were agreeing that, that, um, that we should be looking at bodies and defining them from 
uh, a constructed and non-binary central perspective and viewing them through that lens. Whereas many of her critics were saying, well, no, we still need to be able to view bodies and uh, from some essentialist and binary perspectives or positions or experience at least. So, you know, Butler's non-binary view of bodies redefined sex and gender from its own position and perspective and new language and labels emerged, um, in, in um, gender studies and queer theory, like cisgender, which actually speaks a non-binary view rather than a binary view of bodies. Uh, you know, that was, that was a new term. Um, essentialist feminism, which had been a, you know, which feminists had defined as defending the biological realities of female sexed bodies and lives, got redefined as gender essentialism, <laughs> which is different, which, which is now defined as imposing a stereotypic traditional gender role or socially constructed unreal limits of masculine and feminine onto bodies. You know, and that was frustrating for essentialist feminists who see that redefinition of their work as now gender essentialism is a fallacy that invalidates the different, um, feminist viewpoint of bodies as having essential biological differences, which translate into numerous social, psychological, medical, and health differences that need to be recognized and, um, and dealt with as such. And so terminology and definitions were changing the, and, and so again, you know, her, her supporters ran with these things, ran with her theories and ideas and took them further and developing new concepts and new terms. Whereas, you know, her critics were saying, wait a minute, hold on, <laughs> you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't, don't, don't throw out what we've been working on for decades. You know, there's mm -hmm. some validity and truth here. Um, Another example of kind of the, the shift that comes out of this tension and the two camps, you know, supporters and critics, is um, the feminist theory of intersecting identities that we were talking about and exploring back in the 70s and early 80s, uh, which meant that there are different aspects of our identity, like race, ethnicity, class, orientation, that are involved in shaping our identity along with our gender and our biological sex. And they're all formative of our identity. Well, that kind of got reworked as intersectional feminism that gives all other aspects of identity equal weight with biological sex or femaleness or maleness, you know, and gender as all being equal, equally constructed and, and equal uh, factors in identities. So biological sex was no longer a bigger factor or a common factor of women or men or a more defining factor than any of those other factors like, like race and class and ethnicity. And so again, that was something that, you know, essentialist feminists, difference feminists were kind of chafing against. Um, what some feminist critics would say is that if that premise alone is valid, then it excludes the ways that sex and gender identity do have some common ground and that there are some experiences and biological traits and realities that women as a category do share in common as female sexed bodies. Um, and so 
you know, she was refuting the very basic premises of, like I said, different feminisms, the cultural, radical and essentialist feminisms of the 19th and the 20th centuries, um, which were simply that women live in a body and circumstances that are significantly different from men's with different perspectives and challenges and needs and realities that must be recognized and valued equally with those of male bodies. So I think there are some comparisons that can be made here between understanding gender and understanding race, because on one hand, we're taught that race is a social construct. It's completely made up by humans, right? So I'm remembering specifically a National Geographic magazine a few years ago that featured these twin girls on the cover. So they're twins. So obviously they have the same parents. They were in the same womb and their dad is black and their mom is white. They live in England. And these twin girls look like they are different, quote unquote, unquote, races. One twin is what you would see and describe as white. And the other twin is what we would describe as black. So how can they be different races if they're twin sisters? That's the point of the article. They can't. They can't be different races. They share the same parents. They have the same DNA. And so listeners, um, It's a really interesting article from the National Geographic, I think in 2018. And then there's a video on the National Geographic website and it's called These Twins Show Show Race is a Social Construct. And it's a really interesting video too. And then in my life, I was thinking too, um, one of our very closest family friends whose kids are like cousins for our kids, they've grown up with this family and we love them dearly. And it's a biracial family. And I remember when their kids were just babies, I remember them teaching their kids that daddy has more pigment in his skin and mommy has less pigment in his skin and daddy's taller and mommy's shorter. And that was that. And um, that's totally true. Race is just a construct that humans have invented. It's not real. There are not different kinds of people. And at the same time, like my friend Raina talked about on a couple of earlier episodes on this podcast, um, she talked about how ignoring all differences and saying, you know, we're all the same isn't true either. And to say we're colorblind wasn't helpful for Raina, who's black and was growing up in a like extremely majority white environment. And, and in addition, I mean, there are cultural differences. And she talked a lot about that on her episode. But there's also some real physical differences. I was I, I was just remembering how, when I went to my very first prenatal appointment when I was pregnant, um, as part of the survey that I had to fill out when I was pregnant, it asked if I had any black or Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. And I was like, what? Like, is this some sort of racist question? I just thought, what? Why in the world would that matter? But I learned that there are certain genetic illnesses that are linked to groups from certain parts of the world that just developed through human evolution. And so in that way, where your ancestors come from is significant medically. And on top of that, I mean, so many cultural constructs have been put in place around race. And so even if those cultural constructs are built on imaginary foundations, the construct 
does have very real impact. Like to tell someone growing up in apartheid South Africa or in Jim Crow Mississippi that, oh, race is made up. Race doesn't matter. It's a social construct. That doesn't really help, right? In an environment where race has been made to mean everything, it means where you can live, where you can work, where you can go to school, where you can eat lunch, what bus seat you have to sit in. That's real. And those restrictions are really real for you. And so, and one more thing, and in addition to all of those negative aspects that society has built around race, all those restrictions and dangers, there's also so much beauty and power too. And for example, I'm, I'm just thinking of you know, Black literature in the Harlem Renaissance and W.E.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou, that's distinctly Black literature. And blues and jazz and gospel and later hip hop, there's, there's music that is Black music. And that's a really, really important, really real entire world of culture and experience. And so th- that analogy just came to my mind that you know, race is a social construct. It's invented. It doesn't mean anything. And in some ways, race is real and it means a lot. And it means a lot to different people. It, It means different things to different people. And so some people of color might choose to say, you know, the only difference is skin pigmentation. It's meaningless to me. And some people of color might, might say, my race is a huge part of my identity. It means everything to me. And I can see how both are true. And it just means different things to different people. And so to bring it back to gender, I see that as being analogous because sex and gender also seem to mean different things to different people. In some ways, it means nothing. In some ways, it means everything. And to some women, they might say, my sex is not my identity. It's just like a a couple of body parts that's different. And some might say, you know, being a woman has determined everything about my life for good or for bad. And it's a huge part of my identity. So that analogy just came to mind and seemed relevant. I'm really glad you brought that up. There are biological attributes that are given, you know, that are, you know, essential. They're, they're, they exist, you know, but, but how we see them and what we do with them is entirely constructed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Butler's really trying to get at that. But at the same time, you know, essentialists were kind of worried that, again, that she's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. that you can't completely disregard, like you said, the fact that you menstruate. So for me personally, my reproductive organs were perfectly normal, but they developed endometriosis, which developed infertility, which meant I have, I had to have a surgeries, which meant I had to have some of them removed, which meant I had to have treatments, which meant I went through incredible pain and suffering year after year, decade after decade. And then that Mm. affected my immune system and it damaged my immune system, which damaged my health. So my essential biology as a reproductive female body has pretty much dominated my life far more than the other factors of my identity, which are my Swedish and English and French background and my working class upbringing and living in writers and scholars and feminist poverty for a lot of my life. I mean, all those factors have affected and shaped me profoundly. But I have to say that living in a female body 
that had all kinds of hormone imbalances and problems and reproductive problems was the dominating factor that affected my life and shaped my life. So, so like you said, you can see both sides and I'm very much a both. And I've always been both a constructionist and an essentialist. I, and I get, and I'll explain this a bit more in a minute, but I, I, I think it's wrong to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we have to deal with both everything that Judith Butler has articulated and shown to be true and real, the constructed nature of so much of who we are. And at the same time, we still have to deal with some essential biological, physical characteristics. We cannot discard them. One thing that you said to me a little while ago, Maxine, when we were chatting one time is just how important it is and how much we learn from the debate, right? And for her to assert something that is quite extreme, I learned so much from reading that extreme point of view and then hearing the critiques Mm -hmm. of it and the responses Mm -hmm. to it. I really value multiple, you know, Mm -hmm. a real plurality of voices coming to these issues because that's how we all Mm -hmm. learn and grow. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's, that's a tangent. So why don't you get us back on track (laughs) to Butler's actual quotes? But that's not a tangent. That's central to, to kind of what I bring to this discussion and what I'm going to be saying. And I know when I was lecturing in women's studies, I really struggled to make sure that everyone knew that it was a safe space to express their point of view and that no point of view was going to be shut down. Mm. And yet that has become a a tension and a battleground in academia. You know, how far does free speech go and how much does that intrude into abuse, you know, Mm -hmm. verbal and rhetorical abuse of people and, uh, and make spaces unsafe for them to be in. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really, really important tension um, about freedom of speech versus safety, you know, and Mm -hmm. safe spaces. Um, I like the term brave spaces. mm -hmm. And, and then, and yeah, it's really important to me to be kind and civil and, and to have some good, you know, some detachment, some emotional detachment in in, in discussing these issues. Mm -hmm. And also some emotional detachment from the content, but also a warm and loving heart at the same time. But Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, let's, Mm -hmm. let's keep going. Yeah. So, so the supporters and the critics, you know, who've kind of sometimes aligned along the lines of queer theory versus feminist theory, you know, and trans activism versus feminist activism and gender studies versus women's studies, those kinds of areas, um, you know, dealing with how identity can be defined and by whom, um, these tensions are being seen more and more in the last 10, especially the last five years in public conflicts between, you know, the non-binary and trans activists who say that individuals define them for themselves, whether they are male or female. And then feminists who insist that there are still some essential biological differences and bases for defining what a woman or a man is, which can't be entirely dismissed or discarded by the realities of our constructed and performative identities. Um, And so Butler's work has been seen as creating and inciting, you know, that conflict between binary and non-binary and and constructed versus essential uh, perspectives. But, you know, my personal, uh, uh, well, my, I have a personal story here. My favorite illustration of this tension 
uh, that I've described um, between the constructionist and essentialist view was uh, <laughs> a discussion or argument in uh, my feminist theory class at the U of U in 1989, when my two professors who were co-teaching that class, um, Catherine Stockton and Stephanie Pace, were arguing, you know, constructionism versus essentialism. And Catherine, a constructionist, s- said, um, I don't see what essential difference a tiny flap of skin makes, you know, referring to the genital differences between male and female bodies. And Stephanie responded by saying, when I'm flat on my back on a delivery table with my feet in the stirrups and the baby's head is crowning, that's damned essential. (laughs) You know, we all laughed, you know, the whole class Mm -hmm. erupted. But it was just, I think, a really good I've always loved that story, a really good Mm -hmm. uh, illustration of that tension, you Mm -hmm. know, is everything constructed or is something still essential? One of the most interesting critiques is philosopher Martha Nussbaum, who I know personally and have admired for years. Um, She's just got a mind that is like a incisive surgical instrument. She's just brilliant. Mm -hmm. She's criticized Butler's work, not not so much for its constructionist or performative view of biological sex, which, you know, which like Camille Paglia, she agrees with to some degree, but she criticizes Butler for not arguing well or logically, you know, she wrote an article called the professor of parody critiquing Butler, which was a serious takedown of, of Butler as elitist and using academic jargon jargon, um, to make her work appear new and, and unique in spite of all the similar work that came before it. And she says that the Butler argues argues her premises poorly and in flawed ways using obtuse language that doesn't relate to or address the broader vital social and political realities and omits things like social justice. Um, she sees Butler as really isolated within academia, entirely distant from the lived realities of most people. So Butler, you know, she has responded to her critics um, a number of times. Um, But one more critic, Alice uh, Schwarzer, a German feminist, criticized Butler's radical intellectual games as not changing or solving how society classifies and treats women. Because eliminating female and male identity dissolves the needed discourse about sexism. Mm hmm. I relate to that one because that was kind of my train of thought when I was thinking about race too, right? Like, it's fine for you to tell me that to you it doesn't matter, you know, that that the concept of woman is made up. But in my patriarchal world, that concept really prohibits me from doing things I want to do and from flourishing in my life. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that would be maybe my biggest critique of it is that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the lived experience of many women I know, let alone women living, for example, like in Afghanistan or something, Mm -hmm. to tell them that women, that the concept of quote unquote woman is made up, that doesn't Mm -hmm. help them in any way, right? In any way. Yeah. Or that it's relative, it's situational, you know. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And so... So here's what Butler says about some of her critics. Mm -hmm. She sees them as uncomfortable with the fact Mm -hmm. that my work allows for ambiguity. My point is that many of these issues are not resolvable. And in her, again, her 1999 preface to the second edition of Gender Trouble, she, she defended 
um, her dogged effort to denaturalize gender. She said it emerges, I think, from a strong desire to both counter the normative violence implied by ideal morphologies of sex and to uproot the pervasive assumptions about heterosexuality upon sexuality. And this denaturalization was not done simply out of a desire to play with language or prescribe theatrical antics in the place of real politics. It was done from a desire to live, to make life possible, and to rethink the possible. So that was a pretty articulate, I think, comeback, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. Butler also explained that she was writing in the tradition of imminent critique to provoke critical examination of the basic vocabulary of the movement. She saw a need or warrant for such criticism to, quote, distinguish between self-criticism that promises a more democratic and inclusive movement and criticism that seeks to undermine it all together. She lamented that it's possible to misread the former as the latter, which she hopes or hoped will not be done to her work in gender trouble. This is so important. This is what I see as the crux of the disagreement, the tension about her work from different, from two sides and different sides is whether her intent or the effect of her work truly invites, as she said, a more democratic and inclusive movement or whether her work actually undermines it altogether, meaning feminism. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, I think the, the crux of the conflict. And, um, and I, I say that her work does indeed invite a more democratic and inclusive movement, hmm. at least for non-binary feminists and LGBTQIA and non-binary and queer and trans people and theories and activists. Absolutely. And this was desperately needed. Her work has done a great service to to all of us. But I don't think it invites a more democratic or inclusive environment or movement for essentialist feminists <laughs> or mm. binary bodies or, um, you know, people who experience their, their life and their body and their health issues and their, <laughs> you know, identity as, as very biologically and essentially based in maleness or femaleness. Um, instead, you know, her work and everything that has arisen from it tends to categorize, you know, essential biology or, or sex identity is socially assigned contrived, imposed at birth and, and through life. So, and, and it, it, her work and, and her, you know, um, her inheritors and devotees and, and students and, and peers tend to view difference and essentialist feminisms as unrealistic and upholding traditional gender roles, which they, we see as a real misreading, you know, a, a fallacy, 
uh, that that gets projected onto onto them. Um, so I think binary aspects of biology and life and difference feminisms are invalidated by the notion that she's pushing that the binary is unreal and that uh, biology is entirely constructed in performance. Um, the notion that all bodies and all life are non-binary. And, um, and Butler kind of upholds that by saying things like, you know, all along, the original was derived, meaning, you know, the, the biological the, was constructed. And so this has resulted in, you know, a real conflict based on two contradictory premises competing for validity, uh, rather than finding a larger framework that includes both of them. So um, one of my favorite memories, again, is when I was talking to a young feminist who's probably 30, 35 years younger than me, um, she lashed out at me when we were discussing essentialism versus constructionism. And I was trying to explain both as, as real and valid. And, um, and we were talking about binary versus non-binary bodies and realities. She lost her temper at one point just because I was trying to explain and, and at least to some degree validate the other point of view along with the constructionist point of view, because I validate both. And she said, we just need all you older feminists to die so we can finally move on with reality. Oh, wow. And I, yeah. And I just, I was so taken aback because it, it confirmed for me the hostilities and the extremism that has, I think, inhabited this tension. Mm. And and the erasure, I think, that in some ways is is coming back at essentialism mm -hmm. because constructionism and, and non-binary views are have maybe have had to work so hard and exert so hard to finally be heard and finally be included that maybe there's some overcompensation there, mm -hmm. you know, for their own erasure and destruction. And, you know, of, of queer and non-binary bodies and lives by by, you know, the binary and the essentialist point of view. So I, I get it. Um, but, but I don't think it solves the problem if the non-binary and constructionist or constructed view of biology is privileged, uh, as the only reality. And so I think my response to Butler <laughs> as a feminist and feminist theorist is that I think that her, her call and her, her, her desire for a truly democratic and inclusive movement, which I really applaud and, and agree with. I think that that would include both queer and non-queer lives and both essentialist and constructed views and both binary and non-binary perspectives and realities. I have a, a meme that I like to use that I say that um, a, a truly democratic inclusive movement or true equality in society is the inclusion of difference, not simply the erasure of difference. Hmm. I think that's powerful. Thanks, Maxine. And it, it occurs to me as we're doing this episode on a podcast called Breaking Down Patriarchy, right? I mean, it's really patriarchal systems that have for so long, um, 
suppressed and oppressed and erased and and incarcerated, like we talked about, bodies that don't fit this very tiny little definition, this tiny little box. And it, like you said, it would make sense that as we're you know deconstructing those very unjust and mm-hmm. unkind and incorrect practices, like we we deconstruct that, but now we're kind of deciding what to build in its place and whether we, you know, what, what kind of structure. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, so that actually brings us to the end of our discussion. And I'd love to know if you have a takeaway from gender trouble, what would you say that would be? Mm. I guess my takeaway is the hope that Butler and her critics both, and that people on both sides of the essentialist versus constructionist divide will find a common ground. I hope for a reconciliation or a true inclusion of both the, the essentialist and the, the constructed perspectives on biology and bodies. It's interesting that Butler said destruction is always restoration, mm-hmm. destruction of a set of categories that introduce artificial divisions into an otherwise unified ontology. And I, I think that's really haunting and inspiring. It, it's almost suggesting that that's what needs to happen as a result of her work. What about you? What's your takeaway? Oof. Um, I, I have a couple, I would say maybe one important one was she uses the term, the heterosexual matrix. And Mm -hmm. I, that's one that we didn't have time to discuss in this episode. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll mention it here. But just in terms of trying to step into someone else's shoes, I, I do know what it feels like to wake up inside a matrix and realize, Mm -hmm. you know, that the structures of power don't include me as an equal or an equitable participant. And for a lot of straight white women, um, we know what that feels like, you know, to wake up and realize like, whoa, this whole structure (laughs) is oppressive to me. And, and we'll talk about this more. We'll talk about the heterosexual matrix more on our episodes about LGBTQ history Mm -hmm. and queer theory. Um, when we do a four-part series, actually, that's going to air next month, and it's centered around a few key texts, including the Obergefell v. Hodges Supreme Court decision about um, marriage equality. But anyway, but gender trouble points out this heterosexual matrix that we all live in. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about some of my listeners that might be uncomfortable, people who grew up in really conservative religions and might not see that ma- that matrix. And so my hope is that for listeners who find this challenging that you'll use empathy to try to step into the shoes of those who find themselves outside the matrix of traditional, i.e. patriarchally constructed scripts of sex and gender and what that would feel like. And that's why I brought up, you know, Judith Butler's, I was so moved by it. And that's why I selected it at the very beginning of the episode to say like, what does this feel like to a real person? And what Mm -hmm. did it feel like to her uncle? And what did it feel like being his niece? And, And then how did she feel? Just I just picture her sitting on the beach and wrestling with this in her own life. And so for me, my feelings, well, yeah, I wanted to share one more thing, I guess, is that my feelings about um, trans sexuality evolved a lot um, the day that I got a phone call from one of my very closest friends and she 
told me all about this process of what she was going through with her life when her child, whom I had known since very early childhood, I know this, I knew this child really, really well. And she told me that this child was going through a transition of sexual identity. And I mean, the struggle and the suffering Mm -hmm. that this, Mm -hmm. that this Mm -hmm. child was going through. And for me to know this human being, Again, I'd never known a trans person before and everything shifted once I Mm -hmm. knew that kid and loved that kid and loved that kid's family. And and then it happened again just last month. I went to lunch with another very close friend of mine and she shared about her child and boy and one of my, you know, Eric's best friends also has a trans kid. And I just when you see it close up and you see it in people you love, you realize, I mean, for me, what I think is there are a lot of things where Judith Butler introduced a lot more questions than answers for me. And I'm trying to just be humble and open-minded and learn all I can. And one answer that I'm really, really clear on is just love, love and be kind. And Hmm. I mean, if you have no idea what it would feel like, then then mind your own beeswax. (laughs) Then stay that right. Then step back with kindness and grace and allow people to, Mm -hmm. um, to work through the things that they, you know, that they need to work through with, with love and safety and kindness that, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a really low bar, but I just wanted to throw it out there. Well, no, it's, it's vital because that's really at the crux of the pain and the anger and the conflicts out, you know, out there and on the internet and in academic discourse and pop discourse over this, um, Mm -hmm. because the, the essentialist and traditional, um, point of view has been killing people for, Mm -hmm not only decades, centuries, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. been torturing and killing people. And, you know, I understand and I honor and, and, you know, the anger, you know, and uh, about anyone expressing a point of view that projects, you know, or, or writes onto another body, you know, someone else's perspective. We don't have the right to project or write onto another body our perspective on gender and sex and our beliefs. And and this is what the activism and the anger is standing up to and, and needs to. Because as you said, you know, I mean, the point is we define, and this this is a truth that, that comes out of Butler's work and, and all the resulting work. We are, as individuals, we define our own identity and gender and sexuality and we get to say who and what we are and and that is true and and then the issue becomes well if someone is expressing their own identity and their own views about identity and they're not really commenting on you or yours is that inappropriate is that abusive and so mm-hmm. th- that's where the tension is in mm-hmm. you know the battle over who gets to say what in public you know mm-hmm. about gendered and sexed bodies when are we describing our own experience and our own identity and when are our descriptions or beliefs you know about our own experience when is that intruding on someone else's body and psyche and life in a way that is harmful Mm -hmm. you know so i want to be careful and i hope that i've been careful in trying to explain and and validate different views without being 
insensitive or coming across mm-hmm. like I'm not aware of the stakes here mm-hmm. and, and why this is such a, a conflicted topic. Mm. I, I think you've done it beautifully and masterfully, and it just makes me all the more grateful that you were the one to discuss this book with me. You introduced it to me. <laughs> like you, I really am, uh, I, I see its value. It's, it's really critical reading and so grateful that you were the one to discuss it with me. So thank you, Maxine. Thanks so much for being here again. Well, it was my pleasure. It's really a pleasure to to talk with you about these things. We could talk about this forever. I could do three more podcasts on this. So thanks, Amy. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you. And we are going to have you do another podcast because <laughs> our very next episode, actually, of Breaking Down Patriarchy will feature Maxine Hanks again. So thank you for coming back again next week. This will be the third and final episode with Maxine, and it will be on the anthologies. Woman Spirit Rising, a Feminist Reader in Religion from 1979 and then re-released in 1992. And then its sequel, which is called Weaving the Visions, New Patterns in Feminist Spirituality from 1989. And both of these anthologies were edited by Carol Christ and Judith Plaskow. And in addition, I'm really excited, Maxine, because I know you'll be talking about your own journey in feminist theology. And really anyone who's interested in religion and has enjoyed, especially the the previous episodes that we've done on this podcast, especially about Mary Magdalene, um, Sarah Grimke, and is you know, listeners who are really interested in feminist theology will not want to miss this episode um, about you know, retaining faith while wrestling with patriarchy. Um, these books I found to be absolutely essential reading. And then also, I have to say too, any Mormon listeners, listeners who are LDS, absolutely must get Maxine Hanks's groundbreaking book, Women and Authority, Reemerging Mormon Feminism, which was published in, was it 1992, Maxine? Mm-hmm, that 1992. That mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, that will Around go along. Same time. Right in the same time. Exactly. (laughs) And so it's a big reading assignment for next week. But I have to say, you don't have to necessarily read these books before listening. It's not like there will be spoilers. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In fact, I think our episode next week will provide a really good introduction before reading those books. And before I say join us next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, I have one more thing to add. I'm recording this little addendum about a week after we finished the episode that you just heard with Maxine, because a few days ago, my friend Christy Skousen, who you'll remember, uh, did the episode on Keep the Damned Women Out, Christy texted me a link to an episode of Radiolab, and she said, you have to listen to this right now. It was an episode in a series called Gonads. So I listened to that episode, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. And I discovered that it was just one in, I think, a seven-part series. And so I listened to every single episode, and it answered so many questions that I had had related to how sex is essential versus how it's constructed and how it's constructed differently for different people, the role of chromosomes, the role of hormones, And the episodes are just full of really riveting personal stories and fascinating science. And it's funny because it's Radiolab. So I highly, highly recommend that you find it right now and listen to all the episodes. The episodes aren't very long and they really are 
I mean, not only entertaining, but so, so enriching and really helped me understand gender trouble and all of the issues that we talked about a lot better. So again, it's a series called Gonads on Radiolab. So give it a listen and then join us for our discussion next week on Women's Spirit Rising and Weaving the Visions next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 